Everybody, if you would, turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 15. And um, just as kind of a, a little preface, Matthew records an interesting exchange in the 15th chapter of his gospel. And like all biblical truth, the truth expressed in this account is, of course, timeless. But I think this is especially important for our day and time and specifically for our little church here. Um, and I only say that because it seems obvious to me. And the reason it seems obvious to me is, um, if you remember about two weeks ago, I believe it was, uh, Brother Tony preached a message regarding basically the same main point of our text tonight. And then he alluded to it again this morning. And as you know, I've been working through Matthew, or we've been working through Matthew for quite some time. So we're just going through the gospel. Nothing's pre-planned. I don't teach, you know, topical messages and things like that. I just, we're tracing through uh, the gospel as Matthew presented it. And it seems that God's providence has determined that we would spend our time looking at this message tonight. So uh, what I would say is just as Jesus would sometimes repeat things for emphasis, and he would say them twice so that people would really hone in and listen, um, saying, truly, truly, I say to you, it seems that he's emphasizing this truth for us in this season, so I think we'd do well to listen. Back in the 1950s, a Catholic neighborhood, or predominantly Catholic neighborhood, was uh, all the members were settling down around the same time on a Friday night to eat what all Catholics eat, I guess, on a Friday night, fish. And as they sat down to eat, the, the smell of a delicious steak wafted uh, through their kitchen windows coming from the recently purchased house of their new neighbor nearby. The men of the neighborhood looked over the, over the fences and they saw their new neighbor at his barbecue pit grilling a steak. And they looked at their fish, Joseph, they smelled the steak, but they stayed strong. They remained stoic. And as, as is their duty, they ate the fish. And they were okay with that, but this happened Friday after Friday after Friday after Friday. And it doesn't matter how much you like fish, steak's just better. So after time, the men of the community decided they had to deal with this problem. So they came up with the genius idea that they would build relationship with this man, this new neighbor, and they would convert him to Catholicism so that he would fall in line with their traditions and their way of doing things. So they started going and watching football games with him at his, at his house and bringing him and his family over for, you know, for events at their home, and they would go to the bowling alley together and all these things. And after a time, the man was so taken aback by their love and their affection that it worked, and he decided to convert to Catholicism. So one day during Mass, the priest stood over him and took the holy water, and he said, You were born a Protestant. Splash! You were raised a Protestant. Splash! You are a Catholic. And everyone considered the deal done. And the next Friday night, they have the whole community sitting down to eat their meal of, of course, fish. And all of a sudden, just as they started to take the first bite, everybody smelled the enticing smell of a sizzling steak wafting through their windows again. And they all looked up and peered. And their new neighbor, recently converted, was standing over his barbecue pit with a big juicy steak with a bowl of water in his hand. He said, you were born a cow. Splash! You were raised a cow. Splash! You are fish. That story illustrates a certain truth, not that steak's better than fish, although it is, but it illustrates a certain truth about the inability of man-made traditions to change the true condition 
of who a person is. In verses 1 and 2, Matthew writes in chapter 15, Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, if you recall, Matthew chapter 14 ends with Jesus at uh, Gennesaret, which was by the Sea of Galilee. That's a very long way from Jerusalem, if you know the geography of the land. These Pharisees and these scribes had traveled somewhere between 70 and 75 miles to see Jesus, to visit with him, to meet him face to face. And when they do, they bring up this tradition of the elders. Now, if you made a 70 plus mile journey on foot, possibly on the back of a, of a donkey, to see somebody, you wouldn't do it just to make small talk. You would have a purpose. You would have an, an intent. And these men did the same. Their purpose was to accuse Jesus. Now, they didn't accuse him outright. They, you know, the Pharisees and scribes had tried that before, and he humiliated them several times. So they, uh, they had begun some time back to accuse him in kind of a, a sideways attack. They were accusing him cleverly by accusing his disciples of violating the teachings of their uh, Jewish religion. And they hope to discredit Jesus by implicating him through his association with his disciples. And Matthew continues on. He says in verse 3, He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if someone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus here provides a, a contrast exposing the problem with so much religion in the world. The Pharisees were proving that they were, to be honest, just like you and I are really prone to be. They focused on the traditions of men while Jesus has always been and will always be concerned with God's truth and nothing else. Before we go any further, I think we need to clarify some things. Though. We probably need to clarify what we're talking about when we speak about traditions and God's word or God's commandments. Because I'm not saying that everything that people do traditionally is necessarily a bad thing. It's not. It's not necessarily wrong. Just because we call something a tradition doesn't mean it's necessarily wrong. Please don't think that's the point of what we're saying tonight. Um, I think we have many good traditions in the Baptist faith. I think we have many good traditions in our local church. And I think we probably all have some really, really good traditions in our personal lives and our personal families and within our homes. The rub comes from the origin of our traditions. When Jesus speaks of traditions here, if you go back and you look at, I'm not going to give you a Greek lesson like I sometimes prone, am prone to do, but um, if you look at the, the original language here, when Jesus says traditions here, he's speaking of a transmission. He's talking about a transmitted or passed down message, not from God, but from men, specifically from the Jewish elders and rabbis. This is man's communicated opinion. It came from men and nothing higher. 
When he speaks of a commandment, he's referring of God's injunction. Now, um, if, if you've been keeping up with some of the court cases that have been going on with, uh, say, Grace Community Church in California or other uh, religious organizations that have been uh, oppressed and have really been attacked through uh, some of the government's attempts to stretch their power out, um, you've probably heard the word injunction quite a few times. There's been a lot of injunctions filed here recently for the sake of the gospel, to be quite honest. Um, an injunction is a legally binding writ. And in this case, it is a pronouncement that is backed by nothing less than the authority of the throne of God himself. The commandment of God is a legal utterance that carries the full weight of God's total authority that he holds over all the universe. And that being said, is obviously higher than any opinion coming from any merely created being, whether it's a man, an angel, or anything else. Now what we need to realize is that the human heart, which is always inclined to evil, according to Genesis chapter 8, is prone to work hard to develop traditions that on the outside look religious, but what they really do is they serve as um, defensive walls against the invasion of God's truth that would call us to account concerning our real problem, which is our sin nature. We're good at, def our hearts are good at defending themselves or us from the truth that would invade our lives and force us to change. Here's the truth of the matter. God, who has no beginning and no end, has always been simply being. Now, I know that's a statement that we probably all would agree with, but I want us to really think about that just a minute. He's the only one that was never created. He had no beginning. He had no end. Everybody here knows that, but grasp that for a minute. He's always been just there, just being. Nobody told him when he could start. No one can tell him when he will stop. He had no start. It's always been just him. And everything else that has ever been came from him. Who's more real, God or everything else? It's God. Everything else came from his imagination. Everything else came from his creativity. Everything else came from his power. He is the only one who is totally self-sustaining. You and I are not self-sustaining. You can't take a breath unless God forces your body to inhale it by his sovereignty. And he also grants the breath for you to inhale. Your heart won't beat without him. If he were to take all his breath back to himself, all living creatures would fall down dead, according to the book of Job. He is transcendent, then, above all creation. Therefore, we could just say this, God is perfection. I didn't, say God's, I didn't just say God's perfect, I said God is perfection. I think sometimes we get a twisted idea, even in the church, about what it means for God to be perfect. We, have, we grow up with this idea that there is some standard of perfection floating around out there somewhere in the cosmos. And God happens to be, of course, the only one who can meet that standard. That's not the way it is. That is totally not the way it is. God is perfection because he's God. Whatever is perfect is perfect because it's him. The fact that he says something is what makes it true. The fact that he endorses something, regardless of what it is, is what makes it right. He is perfect. And when we understand that, 
then we can understand that anything that is not him, by definition, is fundamentally imperfect. He is the creator, and we, being created then, are fundamentally not like God. So he's perfect. We are, he's completely perfect because he's completely himself. We're completely imperfect because we're totally not him. We're imperfect in our nature, and we prove it in our thoughts and in our desires and in our words and, of course, our actions. And God commands that we do something that is totally outside of our nature. He commands for us to be perfect as he is perfect. He says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. He gives his law then to show us how not like him we are because we can grasp the idea, the, the, the academic understanding that of course God's God and we're not. So of course, Chris, I'm not like God. So of course I'm not perfect and I'm a sinner and all that stuff. But if you're like me, then you are probably really, really, really good at conceding that the big stuff, you know, things that are very obvious, lying, adultery, murder, those kind of things. Those kind of things, if you violate that, of course, that's wrong. But at the same time, your heart is probably really, really, really good at manipulating even you. Your heart manipulates itself into believing that you're not really that bad. And you don't really violate things that God really does care about. An example might be this. There's been a lot of days, Mike, where I felt like I did a really good job in the faith. But if I really sit down and look at it, did I love God with all my heart, all my might, all my soul, all my strength? No. Miserable failure. An F across the board. On my best day, I don't know that it even comes up to the score of a zero. And you're the same way. We're probably oh, so far below the standard that we can't even recognize where we are. And that's because our wicked heart wants to convince us that we're not guilty. Because not guilty feels good. And not guilty means we don't have to change. So God in his love and mercy gives us his word, gives us his commandments to show us how not like him we are. And to convince us of our guilt. And then to lead us to repentance and trusting dependence not on ourselves but on Christ Jesus as the only one who could be perfect and did so in your place and my place. And unfortunately, all man-made religion, whether it's an official man-made religion or it's something personal that you've come up with, your own ideology, your own way of viewing certain facets of life, whichever one it is, all man-made religion comes from the heart's attempt to replace God's law for our own. That's really the case of what's stirring in the heart and soul of every human being Right now, there's a war going on inside every believer, and there's not even a war going on in the lost man where the heart of man wants to replace the law of God with his own law. Why do we do that? Well, of course, we do this because our law doesn't condemn us as guilty, and it doesn't force us to change in any way that we don't really want to. Our traditions don't hold us to any standard higher than ourselves because they originate within us. The law of God holds me to a higher standard because they originate from the one who's higher than me. The law of Brian doesn't really hold me to any standard higher than who I am already because it came from who I am already. 
I can't call myself to a higher standard than me. How can I call myself to somewhere I've not been? How can you call yourself to somewhere you haven't been? That's why self-help doesn't work, because you you can't pull yourself up, because you're not up to pull yourself. Only God can. You can pull yourself in another direction, but you're still horizontally imperfect. And because of this, when we give ourselves over to mere traditions, we lose all validity. And we also give up all hope. And that is the saddest part about so much of the, what, is, what is labeled as religion in the world today is that it is really nothing more than a forfeiture, systematic forfeiture, of the only hope that mankind could ever grasp onto. You see, there was no law here about hand washing. I've, heard, I've seen a lot of people, they get all in the tizzy because they read this, and they're like, well, I mean, the disciples weren't washing their hands. I mean, what, how do you justify that? Well, I justify it because there was no law about hand washing. It's something men made up. God never gave a law in the Old Testament about wash your hands before you eat or anything like that. This was merely a tradition that the rabbis had constructed over time. This, this wasn't new. In fact, when Jesus responds to their insistence on this ritual, he calls to their remembrance their fathers who had done the same thing that they were doing before them. In fact, Jesus points all the way back to the days of Isaiah the prophet. He quotes Isaiah 29, 13, which says, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. See, a major part, we've got to remember the context of the book of Isaiah. The, most of us are very good at remembering the latter part of Isaiah because the latter part of Isaiah is where all the hope is, right? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes we were healed. I believe that's Isaiah 53. And, and it, the suffering servant is, is revealed in the latter part of Isaiah. But we forget about the, the vast majority of the beginning of Isaiah is really God's pronouncement of the coming judgment. The 70-year the captivity that's going to come upon Israel and it's coming for no other reason than because Israel has forsaken God's commandments and the, and, the, and the love of God and the worship of God in exchange for idolatry, which had begun to take the shape of their own brand of the Jewish faith, their own commentary on God's law. They had developed their own. They had ex- at first taken idolatry from their neighbors, the Canaanites, and now they've begun to branch out and they just had developed their own idolatry, their own false religion. The religious leaders of the nation had begun to abandon the commandments of God in exchange for their own practices, and this would become the root of Phariseeism and would be furthered later by the teachings of the Mishnah. And because of these teachings, the fear of God would no longer be a reverential awe that sprang from the hearts of men who had been open to see the light of the glory of God through the truth of his commandments. Now, it would be nothing more than hollow outward practice based on following some system of man's opinion. 
The specific example that Jesus points to here in this text in Matthew's Gospel is the Corban rule. Now, he quotes from Exodus 20, 12, and then from Exodus 21, 17, where God commands the people uh, to honor their father and mother, and the penalty for not doing so was death. In this culture and at this time, uh, to honor one's father and mother was a little deeper than we might think about it. We might think that that meant just don't backtalk your father and mother, just don't be rebellious, just don't be slanderous, all those kinds of things. That's not exactly what it meant. This law was given to adult people with elderly parents just as much as it was given to children with middle-aged parents. To honor one's father and mother in this time and in this context meant caring for your parents during their old age. There was no retirement plan. There was no 401k. There was no social security. There was none of that stuff. Your retirement plan was your children. And if your children did not take care of you, you were abandoned to probably a horrible death. You may even starve to death. Could be. We see Jesus fulfill this commandment, honoring his parents on the cross. If you remember when he knew that he was, he was hanging on the cross and he knew he was going to die and he was going to uh, be in the tomb for three days, he was going to be resurrected and soon he would ascend back to heaven. What did he do? He committed the care of his mother, Mary, to the disciple John. As the firstborn son whose main responsibility it was to take care of his parents, he took care of his mother before he died. That's one of the last things he did. This, was, this is in, intensely important to God. You know why this is so important to God? Did you know that the only two commandments in the Old Testament that bore the weight of a corporal punishment because of a sin of the tongue and something you said was don't blaspheme God and honor your father and mother. That's the only two that you could initiate, you could sin with your mouth and you would be put to death for it. You know why? Because when you revile the obvious authority that God has put over your life in such an obvious way as that of a biological parent to a biological child, if you'll revile that authority that is so obviously placed over you by an act of God, you're reviling the God who put that authority in place. If you won't respect your parents, you don't respect God. This was intensely important to the Lord. According to the Corbin rule, one could circumvent this obligation by claiming that he had bound himself by a vow to give a sacrificial offering to God and then come back and say, so I'm supposed to take care of my mother and father. I bound myself to give a chunk of money to God as a sacrifice, as a love offering or whatever to God. I can't afford to fulfill both duties. So since God is more important than man, including my parents, I'm going to fulfill my duty to God. Mom, Dad, sorry. You're out in the cold. Now, that seems in a way very religious, doesn't it? It seems very religious since God is more important than people, even our parents. The problem is that in doing this, a person really proves to not care about God one iota. The prophet Samuel said to King Saul, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Proverbs 21.3 
says to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. David wrote in Psalm 51, For you will not delight in sacrifice or else I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And in the New Testament, just one example, um, Jesus says in Matthew 12, 7, And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. What Jesus is exposing here is the fact that, that the traditions of men are really nothing more than just subtle ways of covering our heart's wickedness behind the veil of religious practice. This is religion that does not save. This is religion that damns. And it has infiltrated every area of the world, every culture, every nationality, every age, it's nothing new. It will be here until the end, and it is deadly. Jesus is very persistent on this point, too. He's not letting this go. He doesn't just say, why do you disavow the commands of God so as to support your religion and let it drop? If you keep reading on in verse 10, it says, And he called the people to him and said, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted, or will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind leads the blind, they will both fall into the pit. Now, the problem here that Jesus is getting at, it's a heart issue. And it's the same issue that you and I must come to terms with. This is not a question about religious zeal. Don't get distracted into thinking that this is about being, um, being dedicated to whatever religion you think is best. It's not about zeal. The Pharisees were very zealous. They would, of course, travel all the way across the sea just to make, as Jesus said, one single convert. While most of us in the church would scarcely walk across a parking lot to share the gospel with somebody we don't know. The problem with many people who hold to mere tradition, it's not their zeal, it's their heart. Jesus is referring to two groups here that are willfully overtaken by the lies of the kind of traditions that we're talking about tonight. And listen, I'm not giving specific examples about what these traditions may be. I may mention a few as we go, but I'm not listing down a bunch of, you know, if you do this, if you do this, if you do this. You know why? Number one, because you may misunderstand some things I say. Number two, and more importantly, where do you start? Literally, these things come from the wicked human heart. It's almost an infinite number of things that it could be. Because it's a heart issue. It's not just what you do. It's why you do it. It's why I say what I say. It's why we feel what we feel. It's what comes out of our heart. How do you list that out? There's no way to list that out. So we're really leaning hard on the Holy Spirit here tonight to convict us, to open our eyes, to show us where we may have bought into in some little nook or cranny of our life, some practice that may not honor God as much as we really think and really want it to be honoring to God. Because it's become convenient or it's become self-serving. Jesus talks about two groups here that are willfully overtaken by, their, by these traditions. 
First, he's talking about those who teach these traditions. And secondly, he's talking about those who follow those teachers in acting out these traditions or believing these traditions. Both groups are deceived. Don't, don't misunderstand me. They are blind. They are deceived. He says both of them are blind. However, they are willfully blind. Jesus' metaphor for such people are, again, plants that God has not planted. Psalm 1 presents two types of people also. The first is made up of those who walk in the counsel of the wicked. They stand in the way of sinners and they sit in the seat of scoffers. The other group is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree that's planted by the rivers of water. Each group does different things because they have different delights. The man who delights in the law of God meditates in that law. He's planted in that law. God has planted him there. He didn't say he planted himself. He said he shall be like a tree planted. Someone else planted him. God planted him there in that position. The others, God has not planted. They'll wither, they'll die, they'll be rooted up. A couple of weeks ago, I'll give an example. A couple of weeks ago, Brother Tony touched on this a little bit, and he gave the example uh, of Bethel Church in Redding, California. And this is, I only bring it up because I think it's really just the most obtuse example that I can give. It's, it's, this is kind of a teaching strategy. If you talk about the most obvious then hopefully the things that aren't so obvious will become obvious as we think about it. Bethel Church in Redding, California is just one of the churches that are known to do some, some very ludicrous things. Like they take golden glitter and they put it in their air ducts and they put feathers and they put it in their air ducts and everybody comes in and the, the worship team or really the rock band or whatever you want to call them, they get out there and they get everybody sway into the music and they turn the lights down and everybody gets kind of hypnotized by the environment and at the right time in the service then they kick the air on and gold glitter starts falling from the sky or angel feathers start falling from the ceiling and then the leaders of these groups stand up and say oh it's the Shekinah glory of God it's the glory cloud of God or God is, we're in God's presence and angel feathers are falling from the sky. Now I think the first thing that ought to come across your mind is, man, how cruel is God to pluck an angel? You got a naked angel running around up there. He's plucked clean. He hadn't done anything wrong. I, I mean, you know, where do you start? Uh... The leaders of this group, they're the blind guides. And again, this is the most obtuse example that I can offer. The people, though, who go to this church, they joyfully participate in these lies. They joyfully. Nobody's got a gun to their head. Nobody's dragging them in. The government, government's not, it's not a communist country, and the government's taking over and said, you've got to go here every Sunday morning. They want to be there. They are joyfully participating in the deception, and they are blind followers because they want to be blind followers of this stuff. Now, why would anybody want to be a follower of such deception? This is why. They want to be because it puts them in the position of God. It puts them in the position of being God. See, when you get to determine when God moves or affirms you with his presence, 
then you get to really set your own moral law. Um, this is what I mean. You can live in utter sexual immorality and go to a church like that, and you can never feel convicted over your sin. You can never feel the need to repent or change at all because you went to church last Sunday morning after you did whatever you did Saturday night and what you were going to do Sunday afternoon. And God still affirmed you totally because when you were there and you were singing and praising and everything felt so good and you had the warm fuzzies and all of a sudden the glory cloud showed up. So God was affirming you. Why do you need to change? God supposedly still smiled on you and manifested his approval of you with his glittery glory cloud. So you get to have God's favor and you get to have your sin too. Y'all, this I'm not making this up. This is really how this stuff works. This stuff kills people and this stuff sends people to hell. The people who buy into this garbage, they don't, they don't ever preach about sin. Nobody's ever repenting over sin. In fact, if you really, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to beat that horse too much, but if you really go just YouTube these kind of groups a little bit, you're going to see some things that people in leadership there do. And it would make all of us just, our jaw would drop and we'd be totally devastated. And they never repent. They just kind of get on TV and said, well, you know, I, I backslid a little bit, but I'm ready to go out and serve the Lord. You know, let's, let's get out there and see the glory fall. They never say I did wrong. They never step down. They never, there's no repentance there. There's no remorse. There's no godly grief. Why? You don't need it. Why do you need it? God dropped the glitter bomb on you last, last weekend after you went up there and sang really well. I mean, you don't need it. You can sin as much as you want. He's apparently okay with it. You see how these traditions insulate people from the, the piercing edge of God's truth? It can't cut you because you're being constantly reaffirmed that there's no need to be cut by the truth. Everything's okay. These people willfully follow these blind deceivers and Jesus warns that they will end up in a pit. They're going to end up in hell. If God in his mercy does not break in on their heart, does not show them the, the, the waywardness of that whole belief system and their way of living and their view of him, they will end up in hell. And I hope it doesn't happen. I pray that one of them would somehow hear this, and, and I don't know how, but somehow hear this and be just devastated by the power of God. I really do. But we can't afford to tolerate such traditions, not just in the lives of other people, but in our own lives. Now, I don't think anybody here is going, going home and filling their air conditioner duck up with a bunch of feathers. I don't think that's happening. If it is, don't you ever tell anybody because people are going to look at you weird. But could we have things like that in our lives that are just as bad? Absolutely we could. You know why? We're human just like they are. They're not three-headed monsters and we're perfect. We're just as bad. We need God's grace just as much. We need His truth just as much. So we can't afford to tolerate that in the lives of others or our own lives. We must be a people of truth. We can't sit idly by while others believe themselves to be right with God because they have, they have decided to rewrite the accountability manual to their own liking and just expect God to submit to it. He's not going to. We must understand what Jesus explained to his disciples. If you start in verse 15, it says, But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? 
Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. No religious practice made by man can touch the real problem that you and I have. Paul writes in uh, Colossians chapter 2, he says, Do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used. According to hum human precepts and teachings, he's saying, Do you submit to man-made religion that looks really religious? How many people throughout the history of supposed Christendom have come up with some very, very, very religious and zealous looking traditions like beating themselves with a whip over their own sin, trying to sanctify themselves, giving, taking everything they own and living a, a, in, and taking a vow of poverty, being you know, taking a, a, a vow of celibacy or something like that for the sake of somehow earning your way closer to God. Somehow doing those things is going to diminish the fleshly nature and make you more holy from the core. I'm going to tell you there's nothing you can do outwardly that's going to change you inwardly. It doesn't work that way. What Jesus is saying is you don't take something from outside, put it inside, and it fixes everything. Nor do you take it from outside, put it inside, and it makes everything defiled. You're already defiled. Your defilement comes from within. Paul goes on to say, these, talking about those kind of practices, have indeed an appearance of wisdom. It looks very religious, looks very sharp, looks very keen, religiously speaking. Have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It wasn't the eating of the food touched with unwashed hands that would defile a person. It was the belief that such hollow practices as washing your hands would save a person. That's what defiled the person from the beginning. See, we're defiled because, like we said, we have wicked hearts, and we prove it when our hearts produce such things as what Jesus listed. Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, and things like these. Our human nature, let's be honest, loves these things. Joseph, nobody had to teach you how to lie, did they? Your mom or dad or grandpa, nobody, when you were a, a little tot, took you and put you on their lap and said, Now, little Joseph, let me teach you how to lie, because if I don't teach you, you're never going to get it. Nobody ever had to grab their son, stick him on their knee and said, Son, I know you're four now. Let me teach you how to lust, because if I don't tell you, you're never going to get it. You'll be too holy your whole life. Nobody ever had to take their little daughter and say, Let me teach you how to backtalk your mama. Because if I don't, when you're 13, you're going to be behind everybody else in your class. Nobody ever had to do that. We love that stuff. Our nature loves that mess. And that's our problem. 
Our human nature loves these things, and we develop our traditions in the subtle attempt to hang on to them. Saying a prayer and asking Jesus into your heart. Getting baptized. Supposedly speaking in tongues or feeling warm fuzzies or memorizing tons of scripture or going on mission trips or supposedly casting out devils or performing supposed miracles. None of these things in and of themselves will save you or anybody else. None of these outward things are going to save anybody. God saves you when he does what he says he'll do in Ezekiel 36, 26. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. See, this is what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 3 when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. When we were given... As believers, new birth by the will of God, we received something we never had before. We received a new heart, meaning we received a new mind. We received a new way of looking at, first of all, God, and second of all, ourselves, and then after that, everything else. And He gives us a new will that now wants to abandon the sinful works of the flesh. Before I was born again, you know why I sinned? Because I wanted to sin more than I wanted to do right. I was like, everybody else in here, I knew what was right. I knew what was wrong. I loved the wrong and wished God would change his mind to agree with me. And you were the same cotton-picking way. But when God gave me a new will, when God gave me a new heart, when he gave me a new conscience, then all of a sudden now there's a new desire awakened in there where while the flesh still wants what it's always wanted, now there's, there's, a, there's a new character. There's a new... There's a game changer now. There's a new will inside there that sees the devastation that comes from sin and sees the reward that comes with knowing God and having an intimate relationship with God. And it makes the sin look like exactly what it is. Poison mixed with horse mess. You don't want it as much. And over time, the battle rages and the battle rages and there's ups and downs, but, it, but now that new heart never stops beating. That's why a righteous man will fall seven times and still rise again, because that heart never quits. Why? Because it was put in there by God, it's sustained by God, it's held by God. It's always animated by God, and it's always focused on God. Just as the actions that come out of a wicked heart proves how defiled we are, the actions coming out of a new heart that believes on Christ and His truth in a saving way, these actions prove that we have been justified. The heart that does not trust in man-made traditions, but trusts in the propitiating work of Jesus on the cross. As the Bible says, this heart has been born of God, and it will bear a testing fruit. There's no way it can't. Does that mean, Mike, that it, it bear, you bear fruit every single day and it's just so obvious that you can't miss it? Absolutely not. That's not normal Christianity, I hate to say. I wish it was. I wish that every day I could wake up and be like, oh man, where do I start counting all the things that God brought in, all the things that God did through my life yesterday that I just know mean that I'm born again. I wish that it was like that. It's not like that. But because that heart never stops beating, that life will bear fruit in its season. It will happen. In 1 John 2, we're told, if you know that he, talking about Jesus, is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. 
The born-again heart practices righteousness. So why is God so insistent on this? Why won't God just let us, you know, have our deceptions? Or, or how about this? This is what a lot of people from other religions and even atheists sometimes try to throw at you. Why is it that God won't just leave us alone to our traditions? Or why won't God just give us credit for trying, even if we may be trying technically not exactly right, why won't he give us credit for trying something? 1 John 1, 5 through 6 tells us, and this is the answer, and we're all, I'm almost done. I want everybody to listen very carefully. This is the answer. This is why this matters. This whole thing is not a rant and a rave just so you go home and look and say, well, you know, I need to start putting my knife on the left of the plate instead on the right because that's a tradition and I don't know why I'm doing this. That's not the point. That's so far off. This is why. This is why it matters. 1 John 1 says, this is the message that we have heard from him claim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. What the Apostle John is telling us there is this. If we walk in deception, if we walk in darkness, if we walk and live in a way where our natural human heart is lying to us, deceiving us, and we're walking in what we claim to be the light of God's truth, but it's really not then we do not have fellowship with God. And if we live our lives doing that, and that's never remedied, then we lose all chance of ever having fellowship with God. That's too high a price to pay. Sin, of course, separates us from God. And as we all know, Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He died your death on the cross. He laid in your tomb. He rose again to justify you so that you might be reconciled back to God. And God now grants us, out of his mercy, new hearts. He gives us faith to believe. And for the first time ever, he gives us freedom of will to obey. People talk about free will all the time. Yes, and it's, it's been well said, mankind has free will but only to do wrong until God gives us a new heart. The heart, the mind that is set on the flesh cannot please God. Romans 8. God in his mercy, because of what Jesus has done for us, gives us new hearts. And for the first time ever, he gives us freedom of will to choose to obey what he says to do. And he does all this based on not on your goodness, not on how hard you ask, not on anything to do with you or me. He does it based on what Christ paid for him to do so for you, his blood. He does this because it would be cheating Christ to not do it for those whom, for whom Christ died. Jesus bought your salvation, and what that means is that he bought eternal joy in God for you. It's yours. It's your inheritance. It belongs to you because the blood of Christ was paid for you to have it. The water rights to the pool of joy has been bought for you. Joy is laying out there waiting for you to come drink from the pool that you now own because your Lord bought it for you. And obedience to God's command is the path that leads to these pools. 
Jesus tells his followers in John 15, he says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have obeyed my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have said to you so that my joy may be, my joy be in you and your joy might be full. Obedience leads to enjoying the loving intimacy of relationship with God and a fullness of joy that we can't hope to imagine. I'm encouraging you, trust Jesus today by repenting of dead tradition, no matter how popular or no matter how dear it may be to you, and obey his commands in every part of your life. And if you've never truly done that, if you have not truly surrendered your life to Christ, then there is a, there's one command that you must start with. And 1 John 3, 23 says, And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I love you. I worship you. And I want to thank you so much for, for your grace tonight. Lord, I pray that tonight, that as we go home, that you'd help us not just uh, hear this and, and just... Lord, don't let us think about the, the specific groups of people that we talked about tonight and say, well, I'm not one of them, so that didn't really apply to me. Father, I pray that you would just shine the light of your truth deep into every cave of our heart. Do it in my heart, Father God. Show, show me habits and, and traditions and ways of thinking that I may be or we may be just totally, completely convinced that these, these are right. If they, if they don't line up with your will, Father God, we, we want to hate them, we want to change them, we want to throw them away, repent of them, and we want to adopt your ways in their place. Please do that for us, Father God. We need it, and our Lord Jesus deserves it, Father God. Please do this in his name. We ask that you would just bless everybody that couldn't be here with us tonight. And Father, if anybody's listening over the social media tonight, um, and they don't know you, God, I pray that you would just glorify the name of your son Jesus by, by granting them a new heart by granting them faith, Father God, and and, and through whatever way you, you have to do it, Lord, lead them to Christ and, and bring them into a relationship with him that causes them to be a new creature. I pray these things in Jesus' name, Father. Amen.